Turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Luke, chapter 19. And while you're turning there, maybe you've heard this before, but it's been said that the longest distance in the universe is the 18 inches between the head and the heart. Boy, there is nothing more true in our walk with God. Maybe you've run into people who seem to know a lot about God, but there's something about them that makes you kind of doubt whether they really know the God they seem so confident in talking about. Uh, in Psalm 91, uh, this, this difference between, as they say, religion and relationship really gets illustrated. Beautiful expression of what a relationship with God is all about, expressed by King David there. There we read, He who dwells in the secret place of the Most High shall abide in the shadow of the Almighty. I will say of the Lord, my rock, my fortress, my God in whom I trust. It is he who delivers you from the snare of the trapper and the deadly pestilence. Now catch this. For he will cover you with his feathers. And in the shadow of his wings, you may find refuge. Now, I call to your attention a very key word there. That translation comes from the New American Standard, but I emphasize this particular translation for a reason. Notice the key word is, in the shadow of his wings, you may find refuge. That also indicates that you may or may not find refuge in the shadow of God's wings. It's always an open question. It's always a choice, in a sense. Are we really going to connect with God, or are we going to settle for something less? Well, uh, what does it mean to really connect with God? What does it mean to truly have a personal encounter with Him? To have our hearts, to have our understanding, to have what we call our relationship with God transformed so that we don't just know about God, but know Him personally. Well, in Luke chapter 19, we're going to see what happens when Jesus really comes on the scene in human lives. As we follow along with Jerusalem having a direct and personal encounter with Jesus, we'll discover exactly what a direct and personal encounter with Jesus is all about. And I would really challenge you this morning, as we read through this, to allow the Lord to speak to your heart personally as to whether you've truly entered into the joy of a personal relationship with Jesus. We'll see three characteristics of what a genuine personal encounter with Jesus is all about, and maybe uh, God can use these as a diagnostic within your heart as to whether you've received the real deal or maybe just settled for something less. Well, we pick things up in Luke chapter 19 and verse 41. One of those dramatic passages, I think, in the incredibly dramatic ex uh, 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 picture of, of the Lord that we find here in the Scriptures. Verse 41 says this, Now, as he, Jesus, drew near, he saw the city and wept over it, saying, If you had known, even you, especially in this your day, the things that make for your peace, but now they're hidden from your eyes. For days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment around you, surround you, 
and close you in on every side and level you and your children within you to the ground. And they will not leave in you one stone upon another because you did not know the time of your visitation. Now, I call your attention to that word visitation there. It's a key word in this passage. In other words, Jerusalem was going to be visited by the one they had been praying to visit them for centuries. God himself, in the person of Jesus, was going to come and walk among his people. But this visitation is a very interesting one because as Jesus visits his people, he reveals himself to the people of Jerusalem and by extension to us in some pretty profound way. First of all, notice, as Jesus drew near, he saw the city and wept over it. Now, this tells me something about the character of Jesus and what a true encounter with Jesus is all about. You know, there's a lot of Jesuses floating around these days. Uh, you know, there's a big controversy over how Jesus, for instance, is, is related in uh, cable TV programs, you know, whether the dramatis, dramatization of the life of Jesus is really accurate or not, and the whole dust-up over the, uh, the series called The Chosen. Uh, you know, there's uh, all kinds of different groups who say, well, well, we can tell you who Jesus is, and they present increasingly sophisticated and marketing-savvy uh, presentations of what their likeness of Jesus is all about. Maybe you've been in different churches, and the Jesus that's represented in different churches seems really, really different from church to church. Well, I think it's really important that we understand who Jesus is, not based on, say, what TV's takes might be or the Internet or what churches have to say about Jesus, even this church, what we have to say about Jesus. I think it's so important that we get our concept of Christ straight from the Scripture. And you know, this, one of the most uh, eye-opening, one of the most mind-blowing things about the Jesus that we find in Scripture is related to us here. Now, as he drew near, he saw the city and wept over it. The, the word wept in the original language, here's your Greek lesson for this morning. Don't let your eyes glaze over too much. I'll be very brief. Uh, the, the, the verb tense here is called ingressive by Greek scholars. And, and why that uh, is something that I would point out to you is more significant than the price of tea in China this morning is this. This ingressive form of the word wept it's very dramatic. It means that literally Jesus burst into tears, we would say. He, we might even describe him as sobbing uncontrollably. Have you ever had that experience in your life where you just lost it, where your emotions, in a sense, overwhelmed you? because of, say, some bad news that came your way, or, or maybe even they were tears of joy. You know, I, I think about the times where I've burst into tears when the, the word of, say, a, a dear loved one passing away has come my way. Maybe you've had that same experience as well. I, I can remember bursting into tears and, and sobbing when I realized, for instance, that I was facing potentially uh, life-changing surgery 
uh, when we went through our battle with cancer, getting that word that, yeah, uh, in fact, all my uh, exercising and eating right had done nothing, in a sense, to keep that bad news from coming to my door. And I remember weeping at one point when the reality of that really hit me. Uh, I can remember weeping tears of joy when I saw Pam come around the corner at Calvary Chapel of Costa Mesa on the day that we were, were married. Maybe you've had similar experiences where you just lost it, lost it emotionally. Now, let me throw out a, a radical thought to you. Jesus lost it. He lost it emotionally when he looked at Jerusalem. Now, I know for some of you that's kind of a mind-blower Maybe, as they say, a paradigm-shifting experience, because maybe the Jesus that you understand is the guy straight off the stained glass. You know, the waxwork figure with antifreeze running through his veins, the one that seems ethereal, otherworldly, one that doesn't really seem to be an individual that experiences what we experience, especially emotionally in life. I want to tell you something. Jesus experienced the entire panorama of human emotion. Yeah, I know that uh, that strikes some as rather odd, especially those who are of the religious sect. But, you know, not only do we see that Jesus was capable of losing it, sobbing uncontrollably, as he looked at Jerusalem, but we also see that he was one who was an individual of great joy. In the book of Hebrews chapter 1, we are told concerning Jesus that God anointed him with the oil of gladness or joy more than his companions. In other words, what the scripture is saying there is Jesus is the most joyful person you will ever meet, but he wasn't a one-note piano. He wasn't one of those people that just walks around with the grin on his face. You know, it just seems kind of phony. He experienced the entire spectrum of life. And, and maybe that's why we fall in love with Jesus when we really come to know him. Because we understand that he understands. Even the deep things of our emotions and our feelings. You know, Sir uh, Norman Anderson, in his book, uh, a wonderful book about the person of Jesus said this, one of the most remarkable things about Jesus was he was the perfect balance of character. It is a truism that a man's strong points nearly always carry with him corresponding weaknesses. He may be an extrovert or an introvert. He may be sanguine or melancholic, choleric or phlegmatic, or he may in some degree combine two or three of these temperaments, but he never succeeds in achieving a perfect balance a sympathy which is never weak, a strength which is never insensitive, a benevolence which is never indulgent, or a drive which is never ruthless. Jesus alone seems to have achieved this balance, and in him, every temperament finds both its ideal and its correction. He was a man, not a woman, yet women as much as men find their perfect example in him. He was a Jew, not a European, African, or Indian, yet men and women of every race finding him all they would most wish to be. You see, Jesus is real. Jesus cares about people. Maybe that's the first uh, thing that we need to understand. If we're going to understand what a real encounter with Jesus is all about, if you encounter the real Jesus, you're going to discover that he cares for you personally. 
He is not aloof. He is not distant. He is not the great computer in the cosmos, keeping the quasars and galaxies in line, although he does all of that. He cares about little old you and little old me. Now, I realize for some people that's kind of a shocker, and they say, oh, you know, uh, God is so great and so awesome. How could he care about some little dust speck like me on this tiny little planet in some obscure corner of a pretty uh, unremarkable galaxy, astronomers tell us in the universe? Well, when people say that, it, it kind of has that, that cachet, sort of that vibe of humility. But may I share with you that attitude is very dangerous. Because when people say, you know, how could God be concerned about little old me? You know, when I hear that, I have a response to them. The, the first thing I will say is, do you think there's anything too great for God to do? To any, anything that is beyond his power to do? Most people say, oh, no, God can do anything. I go, yeah, yeah, God can do the great things for sure. Uh, conversely, do you think there's anything too small for God to do? And people say, well, I suppose not. You know, God can hold little atoms and molecules together. Say, yeah, okay, if there's, there's nothing too great, nothing too small for God to do, don't you think that God could take the time to care about some little dust speck like you? The fact of the matter is, he does. Boy, King David was blown away by that. In Psalm 139, he said, Oh God, you have searched me and known me. You know my down-sitting and my uprising. You scrutinize my path and my lying down and understand my thoughts afar off. For before there's a word on my tongue, O Lord, you know it altogether. Isn't that something? God knows everything about us. You know, the, the story is told, it was Chuck Smith uh, relating a story about one of his grandchildren who came home from Sunday school and asked his daddy. Uh, daddy, in Sunday school, they said that, that, that God is always watching me. And I guess the little guy got in trouble <laughs> at, at, in Sunday school. He goes, is that true? And he said, yeah, that's true. And he could see that, he, that his little uh, son was rattled by all of this. And he goes, uh, but understand something. God is always watching you because he loves you so much he can't take his eyes off of you. You see, that's the God of the Bible. We're told, uh, for instance, uh, about God in Psalm 103, that the Lord made his ways known to Moses, his deeds to the children of Israel, that the Lord is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in loving kindness. That's the God we serve. But let me ask you a question. Is that the God you serve? Is the God that you serve, is the Jesus that you know, compassionate? Or is he aloof and distant? Is he gracious, ready to forgive, or, or does he hold grudges? Is he compassionate? Is he filled with loving kindness towards you? Or is he kind of touchy and easily set off? Is he looking for an excuse to show mercy and kindness to you, or is he waiting just to blast you? You know, how you view Jesus is going to have an awful lot to do with whether you really encounter Jesus, whether you really welcome Jesus in your life, whether you really even want him in your life. Do yourself a favor. Don't make Jesus 
into a 700-foot-tall representation of some critical parent you could never please. Don't let religious people take your joy in Jesus and replace it with dusty doctrines. Oh, it's important for us to know what we believe and why we believe it. But understand something. There's a huge difference between knowing about Jesus and really knowing Jesus. And when we see Jesus looking at Jerusalem and not putting his hand on his hip and saying, well, these people really got it coming to on, man, this judgment, that's I can't wait to see them judged because, boy, I'll, I'll tell you, you know, I was there when Isaiah got uh, sawn in, in two and a hollow log that Manasseh put him in there, and I, I was there, and I, I saw people harden their hearts during Jeremiah's time, and, you know, and I've seen how they treated John the Baptist, and, I, boy, these people really got it coming. No, he looked at these people, and he wept. He sobbed uncontrollably. He wept, saying, if you had known even this day, especially in this your day. Now, notice Jesus says that this was their day. If you were with us last week, we saw that Jesus wasn't whistling Dixie about this. We're told that in the book of Daniel chapter 9, and you can get the, uh, the, the study from last week. You want to explore this a little bit more in depth. And in Daniel chapter 9, we are told that from the decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem, described in Nehemiah chapter 2, verses 1 through 8, until the time that Messiah the prince would come to Jerusalem, be 173,880 days, bang, to the day. We are told that Jesus fulfilled that, that his triumphal entry happened precisely 173,880 days after that decree. The king Artaxerxes, a Persian ruler, signed that allowed the, the, uh, the people of Israel to come back and restore and rebuild Jerusalem. And we saw that there was a scripture that was being sung by the people as they welcomed Jesus into the city. Psalm 118, one of the great Hallel Psalms. We get a term hallelujah from that. It was a psalm that was sung during the Passover Seder celebration. And one of the lines in Psalm 118 says, this is the day that the Lord has made. We will rejoice and be glad in it. Well, that's one of those passages that isn't just a little ditty that we put on the posters of the sunsets and seagulls and feel better about ourselves. It's something that tells us that God has a purpose and a plan. And Jesus prophetically fulfilled this purpose and plan down to the day, maybe even down to the second. This was their day, and there was no excuse for any person during that time to miss that day. They could have done the calculations. They could have known for sure that this is when Messiah would show up, and Jesus came in and fulfilled these things. If you had known, even you, especially in this, your day, the things which make for your peace, now, notice God didn't come to wage war on them. God didn't come to bum them out or burden them. He came to give them peace. Is that who God is in your life? Does he come to give you peace? When you think about God, do you find yourself thinking about all the things you've got to worry about? All the things that, well, maybe are going to get uncovered if God really turns the spotlight on you. That God maybe is that cosmic crank in the sky that's looking for anybody who's enjoying themselves, and by golly, he's going to put an end to it. Now, God wants to 
bring you peace. My peace I give to you, Jesus said. My peace I leave with you, not as the world gives, give I unto you. Jesus came to give peace. But here's the if. Here's the may or may not, right? But now they are hidden from your eyes. Why couldn't the people of Israel experience this blessing of peace? You know, people kind of scratch their heads over that one. Why would God hide his truth from their eyes? Well, it's not so much God hiding his truth as much as God honoring people's decisions regarding his truth that's in view here. Understand, in the last days, the end times, and boy, I think we're seeing a preview of coming attractions of these things more and more as time goes on. We were told that there is going to be a last day's world-dominating dictator named the Antichrist. You've probably heard of him, the beast, uh, the the individual who's going to to proclaim himself God to be worshipped. And the entire world is going to follow this false messiah at one point. And we say to ourselves, come on, how could people possibly follow the Antichrist, especially after all the Bible has to say about all the sermons that have been preached, all the Internet stuff saying, watch out for the Antichrist. Why will the Antichrist be received? We are told in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 and verse 9, the coming of the lawless one is according to the working of Satan with all powers, signs, and lying wonders, and with all unrighteous deception among those who perish because they did not receive the love of the truth that they might be saved. And for this reason, God will send them strong delusion that they should believe the lie and they may all be condemned who did not believe the truth, but had pleasure in unrighteousness. Now notice, what's going to cause people to embrace the Antichrist? Because they love the lie. God will give them exactly what they wanted. In the same way, when Jesus entered into Jerusalem and said, these things are hidden from your eyes. Why would they be hidden from the eyes of the Jews? Well, there's an old saying, there is none so blind as he who will not see. You know, uh, when it comes to receiving God's truth, when it comes to understanding who God is, you've got a question, you've got to work through it. Nobody else can work through it for you. I can't work through it for you. Nobody else, your, your dear senior grandma can't work through it for this thing for you. You've got to work this through in your own heart. Do I really want to know the truth? Because truth is getting harder and harder to spot in our culture. It was uh, Soren Kierkegaard, the Danish philosopher, who once said that falsehood is so established and truth so obscure in our culture that unless we love the truth, We cannot know it. Do you really want to know God's truth? Do you really want to know who Jesus is? And are you going to take your cues from the Scripture, from tradition, from movies, from the Internet? Or are you going to allow the Lord to reveal his own character to him? May may I encourage you with this word, a true encounter with God. If you want to understand, if you've had a true encounter with God, it's always going to reveal Jesus' character. It's always going to reveal 
who he is. Not based on who we'd like him to be, but who he has revealed himself to be in truth. That's why we spend so much time explaining the word of God to you. We don't want to share our takes on God. The message of Christianity isn't God's, man's word about God. It's God's word to man. And boy, if you've got something better to share with people than the Bible's view of God, then share it. But till then, may I suggest you stick to the Bible. So Jesus comes and reveals his character to us, that he is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness. And he wants to extend that compassion to us. A true encounter with God is going to bring us face to face with the God who really cares. But it's not going to stop there. Notice, Jesus makes this prophecy. He says, For days will come upon you when your enemies will build up an embankment around you, surround you, and close you in on every side, and level you and your children within you to the ground. And they will not leave in you one stone upon another. Now, Jesus is making these remarks roughly around 33 A.D., but he is prophesying an event that was some, well, 27 years beginning in the future, the destruction of Jerusalem, the rebellion of Jerusalem against Rome. And boy, we could go into a lot of details on that, but suffice to say that when Titus and his Roman legions came to Jerusalem to put down this rebellion, every word that Jesus spoke here was fulfilled. They laid siege to Jerusalem. Now, by laying siege, what this means was if you're going to conquer any walled city, you had to overcome the defensive walls. And even if you go to Jerusalem in our day and age, you can see where these walls are. It is a walled city. And if you have a walled city and you have armies on the outside before they had helicopters and things like this and, and drones and planes that could fly over and drop bombs, uh, you kind of had a problem there. It was difficult to overcome those walls. So what would you do? You'd make sure that nobody could get in or out of that city. You'd make those walls, in a sense, work against the people inside. You'd form a blockade. And that's exactly what Titus and his Roman legions did. They built a siege ramp, if you will, outside of Jerusalem. Made sure nobody could get in or out. And boy, according to the Jewish historian Josephus, things got really nasty there in a big-time hurry. First of all, the Jewish people that made it inside of Jerusalem, the various factions of Judaism that were represented there began to fight among themselves. They, they, they couldn't agree. Even with the Romans outside, this common enemy, they were sniping at each other. But then after that uh, kind of got done and settled, well, after a while, if you don't have access to food coming in, pretty soon the food runs out. Pretty soon people start dying of disease or starvation. And we were told that at a particular point, uh, the people there became so exhausted, they no longer had the strength even to bury their own dead. They would just toss them over the walls, if you will. There's reports from Josephus about the Romans seeing these, these putrefying bodies that had just been tossed over into the Kidron Valley and just being sickened by it all. This awful picture of siege warfare. And notice he says, they will not leave in you one stone upon another. In the book of Matthew chapter 24, Jesus is specifically referring to the glorious temple that Herod the Great had spent 48 years building to that point. It was considered an architectural marvel. 
But Jesus' words were precisely fulfilled when the walls were breached and the Romans came in. Over 600,000 to 1 million Jews were slaughtered. And when they came to the temple, specific orders were given not to destroy the temple because it was built by a uh, client power under Rome, and they wanted to preserve that. But a couple of Roman soldiers wanted to see inside the temple, and so one of them leaned over through one of the windows looking in with a torch, and he accidentally dropped the torch, and a fire started. And the gold that had been used to adorn the temple melted in the fire. And so the Romans, in order to salvage the gold, came in and literally did not leave one stone upon another. Literally tore it all down. Every word that Jesus spoke about what was going to happen, happened. Down to the crossing, the T's, and the dotting the I's. But notice why. Because you did not know the time of your visitation. You know, I call that word visitation uh, to your attention here because it tells us something. God knows. God knows what's going on. You know, the, the word visitation comes from a, a, a particular Greek word that we get our term overseer from. It literally means someone who doesn't just come in and visit, but someone who comes in to visit to catch this, do an inspection. In other words, when Jesus came into Jerusalem, the people in Jerusalem, if you had been there, they would have thought they were in the catbird seat. Who is this Jesus really? You know, I mean, we've heard things about him. We've heard he does amazing miracles. We've heard some things about his teaching. But the jury is still out. We are going to evaluate who Jesus is. And, and you know, there's a lot of people that have that attitude about Jesus. Well, you know, I haven't really made up my mind about Jesus. I haven't really, you know, come to any kind of conclusion as far as whether I'm going to commit my life to him, whether I'm going to take his teaching seriously. I'm going to just keep evaluating the facts. Do you realize that every time we say we're evaluating God, God's evaluating us? You know, we think we're the ones doing the examining, and God is on the stand, so to speak. But in reality, the thing is reversed. You know, Albert Camus, the French philosopher, once said this, I tell you a secret, my friend. Do not wait for judgment day. I tell you, it happens every day. Your judgment, as far as who God is and how you're going to spend eternity, happens every single day, based on whether you say yes or no to a relationship with Jesus. Jesus knows what's going on. And those who have a personal relationship with God soon discover exactly how in-depth that knowledge of God really is. Has God revealed to you how well he knows you? Has God given you not-so-subtle hints that uh, you aren't just on autopilot, you aren't just bouncing off circumstance to circumstance in some random meaningless universe, that God really does know what's going on in your life? Well, every once in a while, God can do that in our lives in an incredibly supernatural way. Um, you know, it was back in the early 90s when, uh, I'll tell you, my life literally had fallen apart. I'd been married for 10 years, been involved with ministry, found out that my ex-wife had gotten involved with a best friend of mine, and my marriage literally had blown up. Uh, you know, in the midst of all of that, all that, uh, that uh, agony that was going on, all that dark time and depression, there was a light at the end of the tunnel 
Pastor Chuck Smith. I'd met him at a pastor's conference. He literally created a position for me to be on staff, to be in a place where, you know, I could kind of find some healing from God. He gave me the task of working on his notes on Galatians that eventually became the book, Why Grace Changes Everything. In other words, uh, all I did for the first oh, six months or so I was on staff at Costa Mesa was study about grace, grace, and more grace, because I think Chuck was wise enough to know I really needed to understand that grace. But boy, I was a hurting puppy. And during the midst of this time, coming on staff at Costa Mesa, I met a wonderful girl by the name of Pam Johnson. And Pam and I began to see each other, to date. But Pam will tell you, I was just one really hurting puppy back then. It was very, very difficult for me to even fathom the idea of trusting anybody else again especially the idea of, of maybe even getting married again. I just couldn't see it. You know, I, I remember one time we were leaving a baptism at Pirate's Cove, and Pam pointed this couple and said, oh, yeah, they're getting married soon. And, and I said, well, better them than me. Pam did not enjoy that remark. But that's where I was. And, and you know, I, I remember after a service, I, I went into Chuck's office, and I sat down with Pastor Chuck and his wife Kay, and I, and I said to them, you know, Pam and I have been seeing each other for the better part of a year at that point. And, and I said, you know, I really need you guys to pray for me. You know, there's this Pam Johnson, she's just an amazing person, but I just feel in my heart there's so much fear there. I just don't know if I could ever commit myself to being in marriage. And Chuck said, you know, as he would say, oh, well, it's good for a man in, in ministry to be in marriage, you know. And, and again, uh, Chuck and Kay had known Pam since she was a teenager. She'd been good friends with her daughter. And, uh, you know, Kay's like, oh, Pam's wonderful. And, and they prayed for me. And I said, well, thanks. You know, I really appreciate that. I come walking out, another friend of mine, Odin Fong, who was on staff at that point. He was one of the, the lead singers in Mustard Seed Faith, a, a classic Christian group, came up and, and he introduced his wife to me. And I'd never met her before. And, and he said, oh, this is my wife, Rose. And Rose looked at me and said, oh, you're Scott Richards. And I said, yeah. She goes, well, I've been praying for you. I said, really? Well, that's nice. And she said, well, I, I've not only been praying for you, but I, I, I feel like the Lord's laid something in my heart I want to share with you. And I'm like, oh, boy, here we go. Uh, you know, nature abhors a vacuum, and there's no vacuum greater than being a single person on staff at a large church like this. I had all these people come up to me and say, God's told me that you're supposed to marry me. And, I, you know, and finally I got to the point where I'm like, well, you know, I think the man's the spiritual leader in the relationship, and if God was saying that, I'm sure he'd say it to me first. So thank you very much for your input. You know, you're going to get all bible on me? I was having a vision, you know, and so... You know, but I thought, okay, here we go. You know, they're a Christian matchmaking thing. And, but it's Odin's wife, and I really respected Odin, so I'll, I'll hear her out. And she said, oh, my goodness. She said, you've been divorced, haven't you? And I said, yeah, I had made a secret of that. And she goes, well, the Lord laid on my heart that if you decide to get married again, it's going to be everything that God had in mind for you from the beginning. It's going to be just this perfect blessing in your life. Yeah, well, you know, that's, that's kind of interesting, you know, just getting done praying with Chuck and Kay, and this woman comes up and shares that with me. I think that's, that's uh, kind of interesting, but not real persuasive. And she goes, oh, my goodness, you've really been through it, haven't you? And I go, well, what, what in the world do you mean? She goes, let's sit down. And for the next two hours, this woman shared with me in minute detail 
everything that had gone on that had led me to that point, including conversations that my ex-wife and I had had with a marriage counselor that I had shared with nobody, word for word. I was just sitting there staring. I was waiting for Rod Serling to come out from behind the curtain and say, Scott Richards didn't know it. He thought he was going to church. He's now entered the twilight zone. And I'm just stunned. And, you know, she lays out all this stuff, and she says, and so God wants you to know you don't have to be afraid of this anymore. If you decide to get married again, it's going to be a tremendous blessing. I said, thank you. I appreciate that. Thank you very much. And I was supposed to have lunch with Pam right after church, and I'm like two and a half hours late at this point. And I started to drive home uh, to, back to meet uh, Pam for lunch, and I was driving down the 73 freeway, and I lost it. I just started sobbing uncontrollably, and I pulled over the side of the road, and all I could say to God was, you knew. You really knew. I mean, I, I kind of had this vision of me, you know, messing up and marrying the wrong person and being an embarrassment to the kingdom of God, and God with his arms folded, standing there and saying, man, you made your bed, go sleep in it. But God showed me something. He knew what was going on. He knew better than I knew what was going on. And Pam will tell you that when I got together with her after that, she said, she'll tell you that something remarkably changed in my life. And it was, uh, again, a month later that I proposed to her, and four months after that, we got married. And I'm here to tell you that word from the Lord was abundantly fulfilled because everything that was involved with that came to pass. Now, why did God have to give me this word from the Lord? It wasn't because I was more spiritual than the average bear. In fact, it was because I was less spiritual. Because fear, rather than faith, was controlling my life. And if God hadn't intervened, I would have missed out on one of the greatest blessings I have ever received in my entire life. And God didn't want me to miss it. But I want to tell you something. When I sat on the side of the road, weeping, all I could say to God was, you knew. You knew. Can I tell you something? God knows. God knows what's going on with you. Maybe he's going to give you a prophetic word like he gave to me. Maybe he's going to say, no, just stick to what I say to you in my word, the Bible. It says the very same thing. But God knows everything that is going on with you, and he cares. He really does care. But even more importantly, God not only cares for us emotionally. God is not only invested in us personally, he knows what's happening in our lives, but he also wants to change our lives practically. We're told, then he went into the temple and began to drive out those who bought and sold in it, saying to them, it is written, my house is a house of prayer, but you've made it a den of thieves. And he was teaching daily in the temple, but the chief priests and the scribes and the leaders of the people sought to destroy him and were unable to do anything, for all the people were very attentive to hear him. Now, notice Jesus comes into Jerusalem, and he doesn't go, hey, don't go changing and try to please me. He comes in, and he sees what's going on in the temple. We could go into a lot of detail about this, but he quotes two scriptures. One of them is from the book of Isaiah, chapter 56, that talks about how the temple was to be a place where Gentiles, non-Jews, could come and see the glory of God. But he also quotes from Jeremiah chapter 7 about how the people of Israel had made a huge mistake. They had put their faith and their confidence in the temple of the Lord. 
and had no heart for God whatsoever. But they thought as long as they had God's temple there, they had the get-out-of-jail-free card from troubles and trials. God will never let us be judged because we got the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord are these. It says in Jeremiah chapter 7, God says, you know, they thought that way back during the time of Samuel. You recall Eli, the high priest, had two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, who thought they could take the ark of God into battle, and because they had the ark of God, they beat the Philistines. Well, it turns out that not only did that backfire on them, the Philistines captured the ark, and when Eli the priest heard the ark was captured, he fell over backwards in his chair and snapped his neck. You see, the ark, contrary to Steven Spielberg, was not an object of incredible power. It was a representation of God who is incredible in power. And if you confuse those two things, you really missed it. Jesus looked at people who were so hard-hearted, they decided to make merchandise of the people of God. We are told specifically that Jesus cleansed the temple, not once, but twice, at the beginning of his ministry and here at the end. And and boy, just because he had cleared it out once didn't mean that those same hard hearts hadn't come back and discovered that, uh, boy, there's a lot of money to be made in religion if you have no ethics. And it's always been that way. Jesus cleans house. And here's the last thing I want to leave with you about a real encounter with Jesus. Three things I want you to take away. If you want to have a relationship with Jesus and not sell for religion, three takeaways I want to give you. Number one, realize that Jesus cares about you. He's invested in you emotionally. He's not distant, uninvolved, and aloof. If God seems distant, guess who moved? Turn back to him. Realize he's waiting for you with arms outstretched. He wants you to know he's committed to you emotionally. Second, understand this. He has a plan for your life personally. He's working out that plan, whether you can see it or not, whether you get a prophetic word or not. He is working in your life in very practical and specific ways. And those who are excited in their walk with God wake up in the morning and say, God, what are you up to this morning? I want to be a part of it. Are you looking to, for God to move in your life in a powerful way? That's key to a personal relationship with God because you're going to start to see it if you do. You have that kind of faith in God, God's going to honor that faith. And third and finally, a real encounter with God means God's going to clean house. Just like he cleansed the temple, he's going to start working on your temple as well. He loves you just the way you are today, but far too much to let you stay that way. And that's what a real relationship with him is all about. Can I exhort you this morning? Don't settle for a relationship with God up here. Don't settle for just knowing about God. As we close in prayer, make this your prayer this morning. God, I just don't want to know about you. I want to know you personally, whatever it takes. Dangerous prayer, for sure, but a prayer that will absolutely change your life for the better. Lord, thanks so much that you give us in your word this beautiful picture of what it was like for Jerusalem to see you coming to them for that moment of visitation, for you doing an inspection, if you will, of your people. And Lord, I pray that you'd be free to inspect our hearts right now. If we settle just for dull intellectualism, but have no sense of connection with you emotionally, 
I pray that you'd, you'd show us where we've cooled off and, and maybe even what areas of willful sin in our lives have turned down our spiritual temperature. God, we don't want to settle for intellectual platitudes about you. We want to have a passion for you, just as you have a passion for us. And Lord, for those who think that perhaps they are too small for you to be invested and involved in, Lord, allow them to be able to see just how great and invested you are in their lives, and that you're working out a purpose and a plan that, that if we had all the facts, uh, we would choose nothing else than what you have in mind for us. But, but even more importantly, Lord, we want to be open to you doing that cleansing in our temple of our hearts, the sanctuary that is our innermost spirit. And if we let things like bitterness and anger and resentment, judgmentality, maybe even a reaction to the hurts of the past and personal disappointment, we've allowed those things to set up shop in our personal temple. We pray that you'd be free to clear the house, cleanse the house, make us a place where your spirit can dwell and that you would be pleased. We thank you for this in Jesus' name. Amen.